Imagine you've just stepped into one of the world's largest marketplaces for illegal goods called the Silk Road. Here, you can buy virtually anything. The air reeks of chemicals. Sellers hawk drugs and narcotics. You can buy them for personal use or in bulk to deal them yourself. You shuffle past a dingy stand piled high with pirated movies, music, and software, including hacking programs that allow you to seize control of other devices. Merchants offer you stolen credentials, social security numbers, fake IDs, anything you might need to steal an identity or empty a bank account. Someone in the dense crowd bumps against you, and you double-check that you still have your wallet. It's there, but you can't be too careful. One vendor waves wads of counterfeit cash in your face. As you turn away, guides approach, offering advice on how to cover your tracks. In the distance, customers test out AK-47s, and the scent of gunpowder wafts toward you. While you swallow the lump in your throat, you see more dangerous goods. Poison, plastic explosives, body armor, uranium, a compound used to make dirty bombs. And that's when you realize you're in way over your head. Luckily, all you need to do to get out of there is close your browser because you don't need to fly to a distant country or sneak down dark alleyways to get to the Silk Road. It doesn't even have a physical address. It's just a few keystrokes away on the internet. And to find it, you have to dive into the hidden world of the dark web. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. We're exploring how we share our digital identities and who controls our data. Today, we're asking, does digital crime pay? We'll explore how to access the Internet's darkest corners and discuss how web-based crime is not just normalized, but celebrated. Finally, we'll hear about the FBI's mission to take down the leader of the Silk Road, a man known as the Dread Pirate Roberts. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The internet is often a place for free, uninhibited discussion. If you send a tweet, anyone can read it. 
If you post a photo of yourself, it may get reshared around the world as a meme. And like we discussed last time, corporations, government agencies, and hackers can easily track your internet activity. If you want privacy online, you have to work for it. Without constant vigilance, anyone can see what you're doing online, at least in theory. The truth is that an estimated 90% of the internet can't be shared and viewed, and security remains strong. These pages are part of a large hidden digital realm called the Deep Web. It helps to picture the internet as an ocean. From above, you can only see what's floating above the water, what's called the surface web. Think blogs, news sites, online games, and educational resources. Basically, anything you can find in a Google search. The deeper waters hide all the pages that aren't meant for public consumption. This includes any content you have to log in to see, such as private user data, personal emails, credit card and banking information, or anything behind a paywall. Little of the deep web is nefarious. It's a good thing the average stranger can't see your messages to your doctor or your bank account balance. But a very small portion is an extra secure, hidden set of websites known as the dark web. If the deep web is the ocean, the dark web is a small trench in the seafloor that's so deep the sun doesn't reach it. Its pages make up less than 1% of the internet. Anyone can visit it if they follow the appropriate steps. And once you disappear into the shadows, you can basically do anything you want. Like the deep web, dark websites don't show up on traditional search engines. If you want to reach a particular destination, you need to know the exact URL. Which can be tricky. Addresses on the dark web aren't easy to remember like youtube.com or wikipedia.org. They're lengthy strings of random letters and numbers. But let's imagine you do have the URL handy. You open your laptop, start Chrome, and type out that long string of characters. You double-check that you got the address right, and when you finally hit enter, an error message pops up. Problem is, the dark web won't work on standard browsers. If you want to get there, you need to install a special browser, like Tor. Tor is popular with web privacy enthusiasts for a couple reasons. First, it doesn't track individuals as closely as other programs like Microsoft Edge or Firefox. And it doesn't take the most direct path to websites, which makes it harder for third parties to follow your activity. Think of web browsers as airplanes that carry you wherever you want to go online. Most browsers take the quickest, most direct route. If you're starting in Chicago and want to land in London, you hop on a single flight and step off the plane in England. But maybe you don't want anyone to know you're going to London. Not the staff at the gate who see you board the plane, not the ticket takers, not even the flight crew or passengers traveling with you. Instead of booking a direct flight to the UK, you may choose one with a layover or multiple layovers some totally out of your way. You land in Beijing, then Pretoria, then double back to Buenos Aires. The more stops you make, 
the harder it'll be for a random bystander to know where you're really headed. That's how Tor works. When you log onto the dark web, it travels through an indirect route, all in a matter of seconds. Web trackers and spyware programs are likely to get lost. But let's take this scenario one step further. Maybe when you board your first flight, you're wearing a heavy winter coat, scarf, and gloves. During your first layover, you remove the coat and toss it in the trash. At your next stop, you take off the scarf. At the final one, the gloves go. Even if someone did manage to follow you through multiple cities, they might not recognize you. They're looking for a traveler in full winter clothing, but by the time you reach your destination, you're dressed for the beach. The Tor browser does something similar. Typically, when you surf the web, there's data attached to the signals your computer sends and receives. But when you navigate through Tor, it strips off a little bit of this info with every stop you make, like peeling the layers off an onion, which is where the program gets its name. Tor is an acronym, T-O-R, short for The Onion Router. It may sound paranoid, but these security measures make sense given the dark web's history. Many believe it was invented by the U.S. Department of Defense in the 1990s. They wanted a totally secure corner of the Internet where informants could report information without fear they'd be identified or retaliated against. We don't know why, but the government gave up on this initiative. In October 2002, the dark web became available to the general public, which meant anyone could access it with all the original security protocols in place. But when the authorities unleashed the dark web, they inadvertently created a cybercrime monster. The same features that made the dark web ideal for CIA or FBI tipsters also meant users could break the law without being caught. And there's a big profit to be made in its shadows. In 2018, dark web users spent $872 million in Bitcoin transactions alone. They bought illegal drugs, weapons, and fake identities. In such a cutthroat marketplace, scammers need to get creative to get ahead. Some scams are so elaborate, you may not recognize that you're snared until it's too late and others are so well hidden, you may be funding criminals without even realizing it. Coming up, how to spot a dark web scammer. Now, back to the story. For the past four episodes, we've covered the many ways hackers try to steal your data. They may trick you into handing over your credentials or decrypt your information stored on websites. They even create quizzes or games that look harmless to get users to divulge personal information. But ransomware attacks can be even more devastating. We already touched on these incidents. Hackers take control of your machine, making unwanted pop-ups or pornography appear, or they lock you out of the device entirely. Then they hold your computer ransom, demanding money to get access back. Originally, ransomware functioned like any other kind of cybercrime. Scammers targeted individual users. But in recent years, they turned their attention to businesses. 
corporations can afford to shell out a lot more to regain control over their networks. And they have a lot more to lose. If you're a major company, a single ransomware incident can cost you millions of dollars, and the price goes up from there. When you pay a ransom, you're signaling to cyber criminals that you're willing to open your wallet. In essence, you're putting a giant target on your back for other hackers. This is one reason the FBI has recommended users don't pay the ransoms. But that doesn't leave victims with many options. Some ransomware is based on military technology and is unbreakable. If your corporate data is on the line, it's hard to tell a hacker no when there's a chance you could get access back just by paying them, especially when the lost productivity might cost you 10 times more than the ransom itself. Unsurprisingly, many corporations give in to the demands. So in this instance, digital crime does pay. And online illegal marketplaces are only becoming more profitable. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the dark web had record-breaking growth. In 2020, it generated about $1.5 billion in revenue. And much of this illegal activity is made possible thanks to blockchain. When you use a physical bank, there's a paper trail tying your money to you. Many branches require you to show your ID to open an account, and checks and debit cards display your legal name. However, blockchain is like a virtual bank that isn't tied to your real-world identity. So if you want to buy or sell illegal contraband, you can do so in total anonymity. Other technologies have also adopted blockchain and become tied up in cybercrime. Take non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. You may have seen organizations that sell the individual bricks in their building to raise money. When you buy a brick, you might get your name engraved on it, but you don't really own it. You can't show up one day and pull it out of the wall to take it home. The brick simply represents the donation you made to the organization. It's a symbolic gesture. That's similar to how NFTs work. When you purchase an NFT, you're buying a record saying you own it. But you don't get anything physical out of the transaction. There's no framed picture to hang in your living room. You don't even necessarily get the copyright. Nonetheless, investors flooded the NFT marketplace. With so much unregulated buying and selling, scammers saw an opening. One recent hoax involved a set of NFTs called Evolved Apes. In the fall of 2021, someone with the username Evil Ape appeared on social media and the NFT marketplace. They debuted 10,000 drawings online, each of which featured a unique ape character, hence the name. They claimed they were also developing a tie-in game. NFT speculators clamored to buy the drawings, and the project raked in 2.7 million U.S. dollars. Meanwhile, the customers waited for confirmation of their purchases and the records proving their ownership. But when they reached out, nobody replied. The original artist who'd drawn the apes was also waiting for their cut. They'd done the work, but never got paid. Evil Ape had taken all the money and run. They never fulfilled their orders, 
And since NFTs are designed to be totally anonymous, nobody could track them down to get a refund. You may think you can avoid scams like this by sticking to verified websites. But if you're new to NFT investing, and many people are since the technology is so recent, you may have a hard time telling legitimate pages from scammers. For example, one of the biggest marketplaces is called OpenSea. But in November 2021, hackers created a fake site that looked exactly like it. Then they bought ads on Google so that it would appear in the top search results. Pretty crafty. Many people entered their credentials or bought NFTs on the counterfeit site, believing they were on the original. Meanwhile, the scammers were behind the scenes, scooping up all their financial information. Even if everything goes according to plan, you use a credible site and get what you pay for, your transaction may have unintended consequences. Some cybersecurity experts believe the NFT marketplace is the perfect front for money launderers, meaning when you buy NFTs, you may inadvertently help fund criminals. LaSalle University's Kat Grafham noted that NFTs are ideal for moving illicit cash since sales are paid with Bitcoin and therefore anonymous. Blogger and cryptocurrency enthusiast Mr. Whale added, NFTs could also make it easy for people to evade taxes. Since the digital artwork isn't made of physical material, creators could theoretically make infinite copies of a single image. Then, after giving them away, they could write them off as charitable donations. But NFTs aren't all bad. In many cases, they're the only way for digital artists to receive any compensation for their creations. Think of the last time you shared a funny meme or sent a friend a gif. Odds are, the original creator didn't get paid at all. NFTs offer a way to remedy that. Artists can sell their designs while retaining the rights to their work. Assuming they haven't been ripped off first. Even legitimate marketplaces don't always confirm who owns the art, which means anyone can upload any image, video, or meme to an NFT site and run off with the money. These issues illustrate an important point. As new technologies hit the scene, the laws just can't keep up and scammers use that to their advantage. So while security measures protect our privacy, they also make it easier for hackers to steal our money or data. There are two sides to every digital coin. Take internet piracy, for example, which often uses BitTorrent, a process where computers break a large file into smaller pieces. This makes it easier and quicker to transfer large files. BitTorrenting isn't inherently illegal. But after it was invented in 2001, people quickly discovered it was perfect for illegally accessing movies, TV shows, video games, and books. In less than a decade, BitTorrent and similar technologies made up anywhere from 40 to 70 percent of all internet traffic. By 2013, an estimated 15 to 27 million people were using it every day. About 98% of this activity was illegal. 
Naturally, this was alarming for music companies, book publishers, and film and television studios. They claimed they were losing hundreds of billions of dollars to piracy. Those numbers have been disputed, but if you were online between 2001 and 2013, odds are you or people you knew were illegally downloading content. It just didn't feel illegal because everyone was doing it. So cybercrime can also be normalized. And in some cases, a user may break the law because they believe they're helping, enacting an online version of vigilante justice. Take the user publicly known as Love and Mercy, all one word. This person regularly posed as a teenage girl in chat rooms, tempting sexual predators to flirt with them. Then, Love and Mercy doxed the alleged pedophiles, meaning they made public the user's email addresses, physical addresses, social media handles, and in one case, their social security number. But Love and Mercy didn't pass this data along to police since they thought the cops wouldn't act on their tips. Their attempts to name and shame possible predators were imperfect. After all, Their targets could have been using stolen credentials, meaning the information Love and Mercy posted online might have belonged to an innocent person. It wouldn't be the first time someone was falsely accused of a crime, then doxxed as punishment. That said, the vigilante did keep some data private, but not out of the goodness of their heart. Love and Mercy blackmailed the alleged predators. If they paid the sum, their identities would be safe. If they failed to cough up the cash, their info went straight to Love and Mercy's website. So there's room for debate about whether vigilante justice is really justice at all. If users like Love and Mercy end up doxing innocent victims of identity theft and let wealthier criminals go while punishing the poor, it's hard to make a case that they're the good guy. Especially when, in spite of Love and Mercy's concerns, the police do take some forms of cybercrime seriously. For instance, in the past several years, officials have shut down and raided massive black market websites. The FBI even set up a special task force to go after one of the largest cybercrime kingpins and possible murderer, the Dread Pirate Roberts. Coming up, the federal government fights back against the dark web. Now, back to the story. Cybercrime is a major problem, and officials around the world are doing whatever they can to crack down. About a decade ago, many focused their attention on the Internet's most infamous illegal marketplace, the Silk Road. The website launched at the start of 2011, but it didn't become popular right away. The administrator, a user named Dread Pirate Roberts, peddled a few psychedelic mushrooms, but buyers were hard to come by. If Roberts wanted to expand his businesses, he had to build a customer base, which meant he had to advertise. Shortly after the website launched, an anonymous user promoted the Silk Road on several blogs. It was a risky move. The poster was trying to attract buyers and sellers, but they could have drawn the attention of law enforcement. Luckily, for the time being, the FBI failed to notice. It seemed like everyone else did, though. 
In a handful of months, the website took off, becoming one of the largest illegal marketplaces in the world. It facilitated more than a billion dollars worth of sales, including hundreds of pounds of drugs. And the Dread Pirate Roberts took a cut of every transaction. Silk Road users knew almost nothing about the man behind the operation. He hired other administrators to handle the day-to-day minutiae, and even these employees didn't know the Dread Pirate's real identity. All the while, he was making millions. By its first year, the Silk Road had grown enough for mainstream news sites to run profiles on it. Forbes even published an interview with the Dread Pirate Roberts, totally anonymously, of course. It was the first time the public got a peek into the mind behind the marketplace. The Dread Pirate claimed that the Silk Road wasn't just making them rich. It embodied an ideal. He believed in the free market and in escaping government regulation. He thought his website represented a new frontier in unrestrained capitalism. However, Roberts wasn't the folk hero that he made himself out to be. By helping to sell drugs, he contributed to addictions and overdoses across the country. But as the Silk Road grew, packages flooded the Postal Service, and workers started taking notice. In the summer of 2011, mail sorters at Chicago's O'Hare Airport noticed that several parcels had identical shipping labels. It wasn't clear where they were coming from, but their destinations were all over the United States. And when they opened the mysterious packages, workers found hidden drugs. Think an individual pill taped to the inside of a CD case or tucked into the little ripples of the cardboard. Clearly, someone was running a sophisticated drug peddling operation by mail. The FBI knocked on the doors of the recipients to find out where the parcels were coming from. That's when they learned it wasn't an ordinary website. It was the Silk Road. Due to the security, the job wouldn't be easy. They needed an investigator who knew the ins and outs of the dark web. They set up an elite task force in the cybercrimes unit and assigned special agent Christopher Tarbell to the case. Since getting his computer science degree, Tarbell had served on the Bureau for about five years, specializing in digital investigations. He was 36, older than your average internet expert, but he also had a lot of experience. He'd already investigated the hacker group Anonymous. And he knew the stakes were high. When the FBI took on the case, they found the Silk Road was not only a market for drugs, but also hitmen. The Bureau discovered that in 2013, a Silk Road user called Friendly Chemist messaged the Dread Pirate Roberts. They claimed they knew the real names of several buyers and sellers on the website and threatened to publicly expose their illegal activities unless the administrator paid $500,000. Roberts refused to be blackmailed. In fact, he wanted to teach friendly chemist a lesson. He immediately reached out to his network. He wanted to hire a hitman. One user took him up on the offer. On April 1st, 2013, the assassin claimed they'd killed friendly chemist and even sent Dread Pirate Roberts photographic proof. This wasn't an isolated incident. 
During his time as Silk Road administrator, Roberts took out hits on six separate people. It wasn't cheap. He paid killers for hire, nearly three quarters of a million US dollars total. And by that point, the Silk Road was being used to traffic firearms and sell uranium to make dirty bombs as well. Roberts wasn't just a shrewd businessman or ideologue. He was dangerous. Tarbell knew that if he wanted to take down the Silk Road, he'd have to go after the man behind it. Of course, first he needed to uncover his real identity. And that's when he remembered the ads. Since the posts were on the surface web, Tarbell could see who'd written them, or at least what account they used. A Gmail address registered to someone named Ross Ulbricht. It was likely that Ulbricht was the man behind the operation. He'd written the code, drafted the terms of use, and hired hitmen to keep it all a secret. He needed to be taken down. Tarbell dove deep into the Silk Road and discovered a vulnerability. It didn't show who was running the marketplace, but it did reveal where they were. San Francisco, Ulbricht's home city. Tarbell also found records of a user accessing the dark web from a cafe near where Ulbricht lived. But so far, all this evidence was circumstantial. It's legal to use the dark web in the U.S. and browse websites like the Silk Road. You're only breaking the law if you actually buy or sell contraband. And nobody knew for sure if Ulbricht was behind it. Even the ads weren't definitive. Ulbricht could have posted them as an enthusiastic but law-abiding fan. The evidence wasn't strong enough for an arrest warrant. Yet. But in the summer of 2013, Tarbell got a lucky break. On July 10th, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol cracked open a crate of fake IDs during a routine search, and the package was headed straight for Ulbricht's home address. When Homeland Security questioned him, Ulbricht didn't explicitly confess he'd bought the IDs from the Silk Road, but he hinted that he might have. Even this wasn't enough for Tarbell. He wanted to prove Ulbricht was running the site, not just a customer. The authorities needed a smoking gun. Their best chance was to catch Ulbricht while he was logged in as the dread pirate Roberts and then apprehend his hard drive. If they tried to break into his home, he'd likely hear them coming and wipe his computer. But if he accessed the dark web in a public space, they could potentially walk right by him or stand close enough to read his screen over his shoulder without raising his suspicions. Since the Bureau knew Ulbricht previously logged in from a cafe, they figured it was the perfect locale for a sting. So in October 2013, an FBI team staked out the coffee shop. They just needed Ulbricht to arrive and get online. But there was a problem. The cafe was packed. Ulbricht stepped inside and looked for a seat. When he couldn't find an open table, he left without ever opening his laptop. But the sting wasn't over. Instead, Ulbricht strolled to the nearby Glen Park Library, which meant the FBI had another shot at nabbing him. They set up at a new location and waited for the right time. While Ulbricht took a seat, an agent outside the library logged onto the Silk Road. He sent a private message to the Dread Pirate Roberts, 
Soon afterward, he received a reply. Roberts was online. And sure enough, Ulbricht was also on his computer by now. Roberts and Ulbricht were one and the same. The team could almost taste their impending victory. But the agents knew they couldn't get too close without making him suspicious, because Ulbricht could wipe his computer in seconds. So they needed a distraction that would let them seize the device. Right then, two men near the science fiction stacks began arguing. As they started shoving each other, Ulbricht turned to see what was going on. It wasn't a random brawl. The men making a scene were undercover agents. They were faking the fight to get Ulbricht's attention. While Ulbricht was distracted, another agent snatched his laptop right off the table, and a fourth grabbed him so he couldn't reach his computer or run away. Ulbricht was under arrest, and his digital files were in FBI custody. From there, the Bureau found the exact information they needed to prove he wasn't a mere visitor. He was behind the whole operation. But he wasn't quite the criminal mastermind he liked to believe. Take the hit he ordered against Friendly Chemist. The hitman claimed he'd murdered the blackmailer and sent a photo proving it to Ulbricht. But anyone can doctor a picture, and it's not hard to believe someone simply posed as a killer to collect the bounty. The FBI hasn't identified any missing persons or unsolved murders that match Friendly Chemist's case. They don't think Ulbricht successfully executed his enemies, but since Friendly Chemist's identity isn't public, we can't say for sure. That said, even if he didn't technically murder anyone, Ulbricht was still partially responsible for people's deaths. At least six customers died of overdoses or fatally injured themselves while under the influence of drugs they bought on the Silk Road. Which meant the authorities had plenty of evidence against him. He was ultimately sentenced to two life sentences plus 40 years, and the Silk Road was shut down. In one fell swoop, one of the world's largest illegal marketplaces was destroyed. But it wasn't enough that American officials took down the Silk Road. Supposedly, they wanted to strike a blow against the dark web itself. In July 2014, the people who ran the Tor browser realized someone devised a way to track user activity on the dark web. As for who was monitoring the traffic? Initially, two university researchers took credit. They said they wanted to warn users about the security hole and planned to explain how they hacked the browser at a conference later that year. But shortly before their presentation, they abruptly withdrew. The breach coincided with the FBI making a lot of dark web arrests. It's unclear how the Bureau got so much information, but some theorized they were the infiltrators who'd hacked Tor. The university researchers may have been collaborating with the FBI all along and covering the Bureau's tracks. And it seems the agency's arrests might be making a difference. In 2017, the United States and Thailand cooperated to shut down an illegal dark web marketplace called Alphabay. Three years later, in 2020, the U.S. Justice Department raided another online criminal organization and seized 6.5 million U.S. dollars. 
More recently, in late October 2021, the United States and several European nations collaborated to take down multiple dark web hubs. In total, they seized hundreds of pounds of drugs, dozens of guns, and millions of US dollars worth of currency. They also arrested 65 virtual kingpins. That year, Gizmodo reported that a majority of the dark web was defunct. The vast majority of pages had been abandoned, shut down, or were otherwise unusable. The author concluded people seemed to be fleeing from the dark web. He also predicted in the near future, Tor would disappear. Which may sound like good news when it comes to combating cybercrime. But the situation's more complicated than that. The majority of the pages on the dark web aren't illicit or illegal. They include chat rooms, image hosting, tutorials, the same content you'd find on the surface web. Roughly 93% of dark web visitors are there for law-abiding reasons. Many users prefer not to be tracked, even when they're doing normal browsing. And a lot of people have good reason to visit these forums in secret. Countries like North Korea, China, and Iran have severe restrictions on internet use. Even ordinary websites like Facebook, Amazon, and YouTube are blocked. And in many cases, defying the censorship laws could land you in prison. For many people living under oppressive regimes, the dark web is a bright spot, the only way to safely connect with the outside world. And as we discussed earlier, the dark web was allegedly created so tipsters could securely share information. That ideal lives on today as the CIA, New York Times, and BuzzFeed all have dark web portals to communicate with anonymous sources. Plus, many activist groups use the dark web to plan protests, especially if they fear retaliation from the police. It's good when people feel safe online because the internet is integral to our life. It helps us communicate with each other and drives innovation. But with new technologies hitting the market and less regulation, it also opens the door for new kinds of crime and conflict. Authorities can use your metadata to make an arrest, or it may help officials take even more aggressive action say, ordering drone strikes. The internet has made it much easier for the military to kill distant strangers with the push of a button. And if terrorists access that same technology, they could do the same thing. But that's not the only way digital tech could be used against us. One glitch or poorly written line of code could lead to devastation. Or a military conflict could trigger an automated, mutually assured destruction scenario. This may sound like the plot from a sci-fi movie, but there are already cases of violent cyber conflicts today, some of which are deadly. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time to look at the dangers technology may pose to all life on Earth. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. 
See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer and never share your digital passwords with anyone. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen with writing assistance by Ben Caro and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.